Toussaint Louverture led the only successful slave revolt in history. Yet his rebellion isn't the only slave uprising that is worth knowing about. We'll begin this episode with a look at the rebellion of Nat Turner. Southern Americans lived in constant fear of an uprising from the people that they oppressed in order to enrich themselves. The beginning of the 19th century saw four rebellions. Each failed due to the combination of geographical distance between plantations and their inability to hide among the local population. The first rebellion began with a 24-year-old slave named Gabriel Prosser. He led a march of 50 armed slaves to the city of Richmond. Nature intervened, however, as a storm washed out the road, enabling the citizens of Virginia time to form a militia to stop the protest. Prosser was hanged for his involvement. That exact same week, a peculiar boy named Nathaniel was born to another enslaved couple on the Virginian plantation of Benjamin Turner. PBS tells us that when he was young, the boy was regularly overheard describing events of which he should have absolutely no knowledge of, ones that happened far before he was born. Among the other captives, he soon became regarded as having the eyes of a prophet. Nat, as he became known, bought into the superstition that followed him, believing as others did that he had been designated for some great purpose. Like many slaves in the Americas, he became deeply religious, believing in the hope that God did indeed flip the script elevating the wretched on earth into the Most High on heaven. The Christianization of America's slaves actually began around the time of Nat Turner's birth. Biblical stories were first shared by those that suffered around the communal campfires through song. Alan Dwight Callahan, the author of The Talking Book, African Americans and the Bible, reveals that the expansion of Christianity was partly done for nefarious reasons. Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave who became one of the most important voices in the American abolition movement, was one of the loudest voices opposed to the sending of the Bible to southern plantations. He expressed worry that the unfree would hear biblical lines such as Colossians 3.22, which reads, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Owners encouraged the adoption of Christianity in order to create a more docile slave community. Many of them believed as the King James Bible taught when it translated the term servant into slave within the story of Noah and his sons in Genesis. Ham, the only one of the sons who is described to be of dark skin, happens to see his father drunk and naked, a universal fear among all of Earth's children. Noah, the Christian savior of mankind and its wildlife, curses his son to live out his days as a servant, or slave as the English interpreted the word as. 
Worse, all of Ham's descendants were also cursed to serve in perpetuity for all time. Since he is the only man of color described in the holy book, it became assumed that the so-called curse of Ham was intended for the people of Africa. Today, people wonder how Christians can continue to support appalling policies against the wishes of their faith. But in the 1800s, slave owners wrapped themselves within the faith in order to justify their horrific actions. Despite this auspicious beginning, enslaved African Americans embraced the religion, with many of them, including Nat Turner, becoming impassioned preachers of a religion which was used by racists to justify their oppression. As a 21-year-old, Nat ran away from his overseer, only returning 30 days later because of a vision during which the Holy Spirit had told him to return to the service of my earthly master. He was sold to another master shortly afterwards. It was during his service to Thomas More that he received another vision. This time it came in the form of lights in the sky before discovering drops of blood on the corn he had been sent to harvest. Turner's description was written down for posterity as he claims to have found on the leaves of the woods hieroglyphic characters and numbers with the forms of men in different attitudes portrayed in blood and representing the figures I had seen before in the heavens. His third vision arrived on May 12, 1828. Turner tells us that he heard a loud noise in the heavens, and the spirit instantly appeared to me and said, the serpent was loosened, and Christ had laid down the yoke he had borne for the sins of men, and that I should take it on and fight against the serpent. For the time was fast approaching when the first should be last, and the last should be first and by signs in the heaven that it would be made known to me when I should commence the great work. And until the first sign appeared, I should conceal it from the knowledge of men. And on the appearance of the sign, I should arise and prepare myself and slay my enemies with their own weapons. That final sign for action came with a solar eclipse in 1831. Feeling righteous, Nat enlisted the help of other enslaved men to kill the Travis family. Professor Douglas Linder gives us a no-nonsense account of the trail of bloodshed that the uprising left behind, telling us that before sunrise on August 22nd, Nat and about seven of his men proceeded to the house. They killed Travis, his wife and child. Putnam Moore, Nat's legal owner, and three others. They then proceeded to the house of Salathiel Francis, killing him before moving on to the home of Piety Reese to kill her and her son. Just before sunrise, they visited the home of Wiley Francis, but were turned back by the man's loyal slaves. The day was just beginning. Linder reveals that between sunrise and noon, his band killed Elizabeth Turner, her overseer, and a neighbor before dividing into two groups. Nat was among those who had obtained mounts. 
they reach the home of Catherine Whitehead, killing her, her five children, her mother, and a granddaughter. Nat personally beat one of the daughters to death. It was the only killing to which he confessed to. Five more houses were scenes of massacres, including the home of Levi Waller, which bore witness to ten children attending school being killed in the revolt. By this point, the band found more abandoned houses, as word of the carnage had spread. By midday, more than 60 slaves had joined Turner's rebellion. After killing Rebecca Vaughn, her son, and her niece, Nat decided to march to Jerusalem in order to gather arms and ammunition for the growing insurrectionists. They were met on the road by a white militia, which had formed in the wake of the violence. Nat's group disbanded and fled with 40 of the men, joining Nat to shelter among the slave quarters of a nearby farm. Amazingly, he was able to remain on the run until October 30th. He had successfully hidden himself just outside the Travis Plantation, the rebellion's starting point, until a farmer had noticed some brushwood collected in a manner to excite suspicion. Turner was arrested and compelled into offering a confession while in jail. Justice was served by a committee of 20 judges, all of whom were slaveholders. At least 50 men were executed for the rebellion, even though few of the victims had been actual participants to the carnage. Realizing that hysteria had swiftly overcome better judgment, the judges quickly put out a protection order to ensure that more slaves weren't falsely implicated in the plot and thereby executed. These judges had businesses to run, after all. Turner was, of course, among those executed, but unlike the others implicated, he never received a burial. Instead, according to the New Yorker, the rebel leader's corpse was given to doctors for dissection, and his body parts were disgustingly distributed among white families. A 1920 article goes on to claim that Turner was skinned to supply such souvenirs as purses, his flesh made into grease, and his bones divided as trophies to be handed down as heirlooms. There are even some credible reports that purport that Nat Turner's body was consumed after execution by those that had imprisoned him. While that was most likely metaphorical, it is easy to understand the connection between slavery and cannibalism. Channing Gerard Joseph penned an essay for Oxford American entitled the art of being eaten alive, where he tells of plantation masters spreading the myth that men such as Nat Turner were indeed eaten, telling us that slavers bragged that we were seasoned, like all good food should be, so we might fetch a higher price at auction. At times, however, they literally seasoned us as a form of torture. Moses Grandy, a North Carolina slave, forced to work on the Great Dismal Swamp Canal testified in his 1843 narrative that we were flogged and pickled for failing to finish our ordained daily tasks. Pork or beef brine was poured on our bleeding backs to increase the pain. Frederick Douglass saw slavery itself as a form of cannibalism, 
Writing in 1845, he described it as a vampire, its robes already crimsoned with the blood of millions, feasting itself greedily upon our own flesh. Turner's rebellion made real every fear that American slavers whispered about. Strong, angry, righteous men seeking out vengeance for an unfulfilled life of forced servitude. In response, they quickly passed laws repressing slaves even further. Their fear was visible for all to see as a northern newspaper published an intercepted letter which read, Another such insurrection will end in the total extermination of their race in the southern country. Bloody as the remedy may be, it will be better thus to rid ourselves of than longer endure the evil. Although Turner's rebellion didn't begin the Civil War, it set the stage for it. Nine years before Nat Turner's birth, Haiti's rebellion had begun in a similar fashion. But rather than ending in the brutal death of its leader and the further entrenchment of the peculiar institution, it resulted in the reconstruction of a new society, one which sought to be colorblind. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series regards Toussaint Louverture, the leader of the Haitian Revolution. Episode number two, His Life as a Revolutionary. The French Black Codes gave slaves a semblance of rights, as well as a visible path through the justice system to redress their grievances. Foremost among these quote-unquote rights were protections from arbitrary violence at the hands of their masters. But just because a path is visible doesn't necessarily make it viable. In 1788, the slaves on Nicholas Lejeune's plantation invoked the code in regards to unspeakable acts of torture that had occurred. Upon investigation, judges discovered the charred bodies of two women shackled inside a cell. Lejeune, the owner, had a past history of such violence, but his political connections had always ensured that he was merely fined for his atrocious acts. Despite laws on the books protecting the rights of the enslaved, as well as meeting the clear and convincing evidence standard, Lejeune was found innocent of his crimes. Historian Philippe Girard outlines the racist way of thinking of the man's allies, writing that in their minds, white masters could never be proven wrong, even when they were. Otherwise, the entire racial foundation on which the colony was built would collapse. Moreover, the right to dispose of one's personal property, including of the human variety, was a sacred and inviolable right of man, 
protecting sadists like Lejeune was really a crusade for individual liberty. The intriguing thing about the proceedings was not that the slave owner was found innocent. It was that the government had decided to bring the case to trial in the first place. Although justice wasn't served, the case exposed foundational cracks between the white slave-owning plantation class and the colonial royal authorities, who were doing their best to uphold the laws passed down through the newly formed enlightened revolutionary government of Paris. For the first time, it appeared as though Haiti's slaves had an ally ready to support them. Before this, slaves were limited to protesting through work slowdowns and sabotage. The workers in Toussaint Louverture's region of Haute de Cap were known for being particularly unruly. The establishment of an enlightened regime triggered excitement throughout the sugar plantations. Sensing an opportunity, the slaves in the northern province conspired to initiate a mass rebellion. Historian Jeremy Popkin tells us about the Boys Cayman Gathering, which utilized voodoo in order to forge a sense of unity. A commemorative stamp issued 200 years after the gathering depicts the insurrection's leader, Bukman Duti, a tall black man dressed in the red and blue colors of Haiti's national flag. In it, he stands, surrounded by a group of blacks gathered in a forest clearing and looks up to a lightning-streaked sky. He brandishes a voodoo rattle or a song in one hand and gestures dramatically with the other. Next to him, a white-clad woman raises her arm as she leads the dozens of men and women around her in swearing an oath to fight to the death for their freedom. Gerard adds his two cents, telling us that a priestess sacrificed a black pig to the spirit of war, and one of the rebel leaders, most likely Bookman, asked all the people present to take a sacred oath before employing his adherents to turn the plantations to ashes and ruin. The planning for the uprising was led by the commandors and drivers, men who, like Toussaint Louverture, could travel somewhat freely throughout the plantation system. However, secrets have a way of coming out. Benjamin Franklin, who had passed from this earth a mere year earlier, would have offered the following wisdom to the 1791 conspirators, stating that three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. The insurrection was planned for August 22nd, but one plantation got antsy and set fire to a building on the 16th. Under interrogation, they betrayed the entire conspiracy, informing their torturers that they planned to set the plantations on fire, cut the throats of the whites, seize their arms, and march on the city of Cap. Despite having for years warned Paris about the chances of an uprising, the white authorities shockingly didn't believe the turncoat prisoner. The answer for why was likely racism, as few whites believed that blacks were capable of pulling off such a feat without a white leader. 
Popkin and Gerard take us through the timeline for the start of the uprising, informing us that the manager of the Clement plantation was awoken by the sound of his dog barking up a storm. But after reassuring the pooch that all was well, he went back to sleep. The next time he awoke, he fearfully called out, Who goes there? Only to receive a thunderous reply from within his house of, It is death. The Clement Plantation was the first of many to be overrun that night, with its manager's life saved only because he had been kind to Bookman Duty in the past. This type of targeted violence allows us to imagine that the justice that was meted out was somewhat controlled. Men known for a history of sexual assault were viciously beaten to death while many black women protected white women who had treated them with kindness. In a way, many of the enslaved women related to them as co-victims of their husbands. Clearly, not all were spared, as one contemporary witness informs us of the horror that he witnessed, stating that a sugar maker grabbed one of the masters by his hair and told him that all whites would die, then murdered him with a machete. Several slaves then went to slit the throat of the refiner who was in his bed. The attorney, hearing all this noise, got up, ran to the balcony of the main house, and asked what was going on. A gunshot killed him on the spot. The surgeon was spared on the condition that he take care of the sick rebels. Fields were soon set on fire and machinery was destroyed. Within a few days, Popkin writes, the richest sugar-growing area in the colony had been devastated. And Gerard adds that one after the other, the sugar estates that had made Haiti famous went up in smoke. The rebels broke machinery, burned buildings, and killed or captured planters, managers, and their families. Within a month, the tally of burned estates in the plains of Cap rose to 1,400, including 172 sugar plantations. Those tasked with responding to the crisis froze, besieged upon all sides and trapped within a damned-if-you-do-or-damned-if-you-do-not scenario. Whites in the city demanded that the limited military regiments remain within Haute de Cap to ensure their protection, while whites in the rural countryside cried out for the army to sally forth. While the royal authorities did send urgent appeals to neighboring colonies, they attempted to downplay the urgency of the request over fear that the news of the uprising would deter the French from resupplying the island. They received no help from their competitors, as a Cuban planter described the rebellion as the hour of our happiness. Panicked, whites took their safety into their own hands with a white mob forming and massacring 17 free people of color within the first week of the uprising. The colonial government responded to this latest atrocity by erecting five scaffolds in the market square. 
foreshadowing the violence that would overcome Paris beneath the rule of Maximilian Robespierre. Day after day, suspected conspirators were broken or hanged, while women and men looked on from nearby balconies. As the weeks went on, the bureaucracy's internal dithering came back to haunt them as a second uprising in the East began in October. So where was Toussaint in this initial uprising? Behind the scenes. In fact, he would only claim post de facto to have been the leader of the uprising, finally taking credit four months into the conflict. The 47-year-old's reasoning for supporting the cause was personal. Two years earlier in 1789, the heirs to the Breda family had turned to dishonest means to boost their personal fortunes. Planning to trade their able-bodied slaves onto other farms, for those that were either too young or too old to work effectively. Once the swap had been completed, the Britas would then sell their sugar plantation and its entire workforce. Expecting the business to subsequently fail due to its lack of quality workers, the family would then swoop back in in order to repurchase their land at a tidy profit. For the slaves, of whom Louvator's wife and two young children were counted among, the unethical business maneuver meant that their family would likely be split up. A rebellion was one way to prevent the separation from happening. This knowledge reveals Toussaint to be less of a black Spartacus figure who was a heroic Enlightenment idealist and more of a simple family man who was fully aware from his father's stories that disaster often came with separation from your loved ones. Rather than listening to the legitimate concerns of the island slave population, delegates in Paris urged whites to arrest suspicious people and seize documents that merely mentioned the word of liberty. As one would expect, the crackdown only furthered the slaves' passion for emancipation. Toussaint kept his personal reasons for supporting the rebellion hidden, insisting to others that he was acting on the behalf of the French king. This lie fanned the flames of a long, persistent rumor that the slave masters had hidden from them the fact that Louis XVI had granted slaves three days of rest a week. Why fall for such an obvious lie? Besides the fact that the freedom fighters wanted to believe it, Gerard reveals to us that Louvator's ability to read and write allowed his voice to be heard among those in the rebellion who merely sought vengeance. The historian writes that the mysterious power of the written word gave credibility to Louvator's claims. He was the only one who knew how to read and write, reported a well-informed French officer. This made him an oracle. He was, or claimed to be, in possession of documents that authorized the rebellion. As the revolt in the northern province continued, the slaves began to form a functioning government. Again, Toussaint remained in the shadows 
supporting George Biasu as the title bearer of leader. Rivalries popped up immediately, with Biasu noting the cowardice in Louvatore's decision, claiming with disdain that not daring to put himself at the head of our group, Toussaint begged me to make myself chief. In reality, the black Spartacus merely liked to play the conductor behind the curtain, as though he were the great and powerful Oz. And like Oz, Toussaint lost control quickly. Gerard informs us that bloodshed was relatively limited at first. But atrocities became more common as the weeks passed, either in response to the tortures inflicted on black suspects in Cap, or because rebel leaders found it increasingly difficult to contain those whom they nominally commanded. One planter recounted seeing young children impaled on bayonets, serving as bloody flags that accompanied this horde of cannibals. Biasu and Louvator avoided criticizing the work of the worst among their mob as the government leaders in the city of Cap finally found a semblance of order by grudgingly aligning the whites with the colony's free people of color. The price for the alliance was the formal acquiescence of political rights, which had been requested two years earlier. In exchange, the free men of color took up arms against the rebel black slaves. Showcasing their hardened racial attitudes, the whites weren't fully trusting of the deal and proceeded to take the families of their new allies hostage. France didn't need such reassurance. Happy for the alliance, Paris recognized all free people as equal under French law, regardless of their racial makeup. Gerard points out that this limited step towards equality was the Haitian Revolution's first tangible achievement. Suddenly aflush with soldiers, the colony's government cordoned off the rebelling north with a line of fortresses blocking the mountain passes. Soon thereafter, they began a counteroffensive that eyewitnesses claimed caused horrible carnage. Gerard explains that the rebels, many of whom had originated as prisoners of war in Africa, knew little of European-style warfare. They did not know how to load the cannons they had captured from the French. Encouraged by their Creole leaders, they attacked en masse, hoping to be protected by their talismans and war chants only to be cut down by the disciplined fire of the French troops. A French observer described their viewpoint of the conflict, which saw ten times more rebels dying than Frenchmen. The officer states for the record that their chiefs were careful to send ahead of them the African-born blacks, fresh off the ship and stupid. He finished with the unnecessary suggestion that gun and cannon fire would mow down scores of them. Buchman, the inspirational voodoo priest, was among those killed during this phase of the conflict. It was at this moment that Toussaint moved out from behind the curtain, 
organizing the movement's remaining moderates to begin peace negotiations with the royal authorities in CAP. Popkin editorializes that these negotiations between the black leaders and the whites at the end of 1791 mark the first instance of a phenomenon that would recur often in Haitian history, a small group of leaders trying to benefit themselves at the expense of the mass of the black population. The violence continued during the negotiations, with whites utilizing biological warfare in one instance as they deliberately infected imprisoned local free men of color on a ship. As the peace effort stalled and the counteroffensive settled into a stalemate, former slaves in the North began to organize a black-dominated society, appointing commandors to issue legal documents, set up tribunals, and implement policy. Meanwhile, the regular folk laid claim to land and began growing their own food. These men and women who desired freedom had no interest in the survival of the plantation system and immediately found themselves at odds with the leaders of the movement, many of whom, including Toussaint, hoped to maintain the plantation system, assuming the roles of the island's big whites. In fact, after being informed that King Louis XVI had been imprisoned by the French, Biassou held a ceremony proclaiming himself viceroy of the island in the king's stead. This created a massive divide within the movement. Popkin reveals to us that Biasu resorted to selling black prisoners of war and women and children who could not participate in the army to the Spanish. Their willingness to engage in this kind of slave trading, similar to the arrangements by which black rulers in Africa sold captives to the whites, indicates that these leaders had not yet come to see their movement as a revolt against the principle of slavery, as opposed to a movement for the benefit of those who were participating directly in it. While Toussaint was unsuccessful in preventing these actions, and he did try, he managed to stay Biasu's hand at other points, including one hasty decision that would have seen the execution of every single white prisoner in their care. The impromptu society building continued into the second year of the rebellion, with the rebels in the north taking on official European titles in order to publicly protest against frequent claims of their illegitimacy. Biasu took the title of General of the Army of the King, as well as Knight of the Military Royal Order of St. Louis, while Louvator began to identify himself as Monsieur Toussaint. Gerard teaches us that the newly minted Monsieur utilized the inconclusive year of 1792 to learn the art of soldiering. He was taught basic drills by a black veteran of the militia and took fencing lessons from a French prisoner. But the battlefield isn't the ideal place for one to learn how to fight. The black Spartacus would later reveal that I received a bullet in my right hip that is still in my body. 
I suffered a violent concussion to the head caused by a cannonball that so shook my jaw and most of my teeth fell out, and that the few that remain are still very wobbly. Finally, I suffered on different occasions 17 wounds, of which I still bear honorable scars. When he wasn't on the battlefield, Toussaint returned to his love of learning, hiring a top-of-the-line tutor for his sons. But he snuck into the back of the room to make sure that he could overhear the lesson in order to enable his own progress. Although they were likely looted, he even built up an extensive library focused primarily on military history and Greek political thought. Events outside of his control soon took over the narrative of the society that they were building from the bottom up. The French king was brought under arrest on August 10, 1792, but the news didn't reach the Caribbean until October. The new government of France represented a possible new ally in the fight for freedom, and Louvator would refer to the day's events as the true beginning of the revolution. Along with the news came members of the Second Civil Commission, men whose official instructions were to enforce a previous decree which mandated the inclusion of free men of color into what had formerly been all-white political institutions. Among the commission were two allies in the cause and men who went by the names of Santhanax and Pavarel. Every movement needs allies, men and women who can set aside their own learned prejudices and empathize with another's cause. Santhanax and Palvarel took the approach that the best way to carry out their mandate to win the Civil War was to extend rights and protections that had previously been codified in law to the slave population. Their positions on this issue immediately put them at odds with Caps Whites and allied free men of color. A violent uprising against the Second Commission gave them the justification to deport the most prominent white agitators in the city. Next, they reached out to the western portion of the colony, which had also undergone its own rebellion. In this region, however, it had been the free Creole population that had risen up rather than the northern province's black men and women. The Second Commission's support for the island's western Creoles signaled that the French Republic was prepared to allow that group the chance to control the destiny of the colony. With their detractors deported and an ally at their side, the commission launched a new counteroffensive in January of 1793. It was designed to give them the upper hand in the final negotiations to bring about peace. But it backfired, as Toussaint Louvator found their actions during this period as unforgivable. Responding to Santhanac's desperate plea to have them come to the table, with the reminder that you had us pursued like ferocious beasts. 
Toussaint also rejected a proposal that would send his followers back to their plantations, assuring the rebel slaves that they would now work as free people and with a daily or weekly pension. To sweeten the deal, the rebel leaders would get protection and freedom papers signed by the king. Gerard reveals that the proposal went nowhere, editorializing that if it had, Louvatore would have gone down in history not as the great liberator of the slaves of Haiti, but as an accessory to their re-enslavement. As offers passed back and forth, war broke out between France and Spain in 1793. As is often the case, their colonies were drawn into the war. And one doesn't need to know about entanglement theory to know that their involvement becomes an absolute certainty when those two nations at war have colonies which share a literal border across an island. Having had his fill of the French, Louvatore joined the Spanish side of the conflict, becoming a major general in an auxiliary unit of the Spanish army. Despite his switching of allegiances, the march for freedom in Haiti continued internally, with Santhanax concluding by May of 1793 that subduing the island's slave rebellion would be both impossible, as he lacked the troops, and counterproductive. After all, what good did it do to kill the colony's workers? Fresh off of this conclusion, the white Frenchman rolled up his sleeves and began to work. First, he translated the Black Code into Creole so that slaves would be more aware of their legal rights. Next, he offered freedom to any black warrior who honorably served in his forces against the Spanish, as well as against internal enemies who sought to roll back his initiatives. In the final fight for the city of Cap between Sothenax and Poverol's multiracial forces versus an alliance of rich whites and free men of color, the commissioners, aflush with newly freed black troops, emerged victorious. The literal battle for the seat of governance may have resulted in the deaths of 10,000. Despite the victory, Louvatore continued to fight on behalf of Spain. Having lost so many soldiers in the battle for Cap, the commissioners doubled down by offering to free the spouses of any black soldiers who joined the French army. The policies came to a head in August of 1793. With Sothenox applying the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen that all men are born and remain free and equal in rights. With that statement in the forefront of his thoughts, the commissioner proceeded to abolish slavery in the North. Pavarel followed suit, announcing that the declaration applied to all portions of Haiti, not just those who had risen up against the colonial government. Although it only held true in this one colony, France had just become the first European power to have abolished slavery in the Western Hemisphere. Still, Louvatore refused to rejoin the French side, supposedly due to his loyalty to the deposed Bourbons. His son explains for us the internal conflict that was going on within his dad's soul 
stating that his politics, character, and conduct are easy to understand. A former slave, he loved freedom passionately. But as the grandson of an African king, he could not hate kings and nobles. There were many within the French government who believed that the commissioners had overstepped their mandate, pointing out that the man that had been responsible for their appointment, Louis XVI, was now six feet under. The application of the Declaration of the Rights of Man threatened the entire economy of the French's most profitable colony. These objectors to freedom would have felt as though Wayne Curtis had when the historian wrote that this period inhabited one of those rare junctures of time and place when money seemingly tumbled out of the sky. Sugar was king, the source of instant fortunes. Letting a winning lottery ticket go because it is the right thing to do happens to be extremely difficult. Louvator also faced some dissension, but his was internal. The Spanish had placed Biasu and other defected revolutionaries ahead of Louvator in both stature and command. Although Toussaint had afforded himself admirably for Spain, he had received trinkets, such as ceremonial bullfighting swords, rather than promotions. He first attempted to get even by using his military position to aid in his accumulation of vast sums of personal wealth. Gerard explains that he acquired land across the island, including his very own cattle ranch. He bought or leased several coffee plantations and accumulated more than half a million francs. A fortune, considering that the death of two slaves worth 3,000 colonial livres had doomed his previous coffee-growing venture. But riches rarely buy happiness, and Monsieur Toussaint's jealous nature soon got the best of him. He and Biasu clashed ideologically over the nature of the rebellion. Louvator finally began to assume the public posture of an abolitionist, focused on the evil inherent to slavery. The final straw between the two men broke in 1794, after Biasu's men framed Toussaint for the re-enslavement of some of the wives and children of soldiers in Louvator's army, he barely escaped the subsequent ambush, but managed to flee to the Spanish authorities, where he was shockingly met with nothing but contempt. In fact, his seeking of justice resulted in the jailing of his nephew, as well as the house arrest of his immediate family. Our freedom fighter had finally had enough, defecting back to the French side. Along with his loyalty, he personally handed over the city of Gonaives. It was during the handover that we can see the internal frustrations that were consuming Toussaint's soul as he took out his aggressions on the white planters of the city, ordering his men to murder them where they stood.
It took four months before the Spanish realized that one of their major generals had defected, during which time the members of the Second Commission's bold decision to eradicate slavery on the French portions of Hispaniola paid off. In dramatic fashion, the Haitian delegation, which was made up of one white, one black, and one man of mixed-race descent, entered the legislative chambers of Paris to the applause of heroes. The National Convention applauded Haiti's achievements and extended their call for freedom to all of France's colonies. In that moment, all former slaves in the French Empire were elevated to the rank of citizen, obtaining the glorious rights that came with their newfound distinction. The war was at an end and Toussaint Louverture had emerged victorious, expressing his desire for liberty and equality to reign in Haiti and telling anyone within earshot that he had worked from the beginning for its existence. Although Haiti wasn't yet free, it was well on its way. We will detail Toussaint's efforts to be the one that wielded the levers of power that guided the colony on its path to independence. His battlefield days were over, but as Mao Zedong famously stated, politics is merely war without bloodshed. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.